Hello and welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. My name is Simon Carley and today I have two incredibly interesting and special guests, Dan Harvey and Mark Wilson, who are going to take us through the devastating brain injury guidelines which have recently been published. So, Dan, do you want to tell us tell us what you do, where you're from and why you're here tonight? My name's Dan Harvey. I'm a consultant in intensive care at the Nottingham University Hospitals. It's a large tertiary referral general and neuro ICU. I was chair of the group that produced the guidelines. And Mark, we know you from the past on St. Emlyn's. You've done loads of great work for us. You've done some fantastic stuff around the Good Sam application, which let's mention it now. If you haven't <laughs> downloaded it and put it on your phone, get out there and do it. It's fantastic. We've got it on the blog. But Mark, do you want to remind listeners um, what you do? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a neurosurgeon, uh, work at St. Mary's Hospital, Imperial College. Uh, I'm also a pre-hospital care doctor. And f- in relation to this specific guidelines, it's my work as the chair for trauma for the Society of British Neurosurgeons. We've talked about us. Nobody's interested in us. We know this. It's a podcast. They want to hear about the really interesting stuff. So this is a podcast around a really challenging group of patients who we see in the emergency department, in critical care and in neurosurgery. And it's that group of patients who, well... Would it be better if I start with a case, if I start with an example of the sort of situation that we sometimes find really very challenging in the recess room? A 60-year-old patient's brought into the ED, they've had a fall from a roof, brought into ED, they've got a GCS of four. So in the ED, we do a rapid sequence induction, we try and be neuroprotective about that, and we get that patient to the scan. And the scan comes back and it's 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 awful actually. There's a big subdural, there's some midline shift, there's some cerebral contusions, there's extensive edema, and some skull fractures. And you know we speak to our neurosurgical colleagues who are very helpful under these circumstances, but they say that to be honest, this looks this is devastating brain injury. We don't expect this person to survive, and we think the best thing for this person to do is to be just looked after, and see what happens, and. I find those situations really quite challenging as a clinician. I find it quite challenging with the patients and the family to know what to do next. And I think we've all spent a bit of time over the years doing what we think is best, but I've never been quite sure what best is. And so I think you guys have put together some guidelines about this group of patients in trauma and other situations that might help people like me and other resuscitationists, critical care, emergency physicians out there to deal with this really quite challenging group of patients. Why why, why did this come about? The challenges that you've just described with that case would be very common to many clinicians across the emergency rooms in the UK and in intensive care units. And it doesn't just come from trauma. We're talking about devastating brain injury that comes from a multitude of pathophysiology, subarachnoid hemorrhage, hypoxic brain injury, intracerebral hematomas, for, for example. The situation that you just described has been, I think, historically dealt with in quite a variable way. And that's certainly been thought at the uh, at the uh, Faculty of, for Intensive Care Medicine. And some of the data that exists within data, the database, for example, would suggest that that was certainly the case. In other words, that decision-making for these patients really looks quite different depending on which emergency room you might be in. That variability needs to be explained and justified. That was where we started with this piece of work. So, Mark, you have a neurosurgical perspective on this, working as a neurosurgeon with a particular interest in in people with severe brain injury and other conditions with severe, potentially devastating consequences. 
from the neurosurgical perspective, it must be quite difficult making those decisions at the other end of the phone as well. Yes. And I think what Dan's just said there about the wide variability of management reflects the wide variability of opinion and training and experience of neurosurgeons in particular. Often, you're, you're, you, I, I know even amongst my colleagues, there's a, a wide variety of opinions. And I think it is very difficult to prognosticate in that very early stage. And the patient you described there, I was thinking, oh, it sounds like they're not too bad then, uh, which actually is, is worrying. Because uh, I, I know, as you're saying, other people think, oh, this is terrible. But they, in, just specifically about that patient you said there, they've got an extra axial injury i.e. outside their brain in, in my book that isn't a brain injury if you can if you can treat the reversible causes like the four h's four t's it's a similar sort of thing and then it's the underlying parenchymal injury that's the problem and if they've got lots of parenchymal injury as well then yeah, that, that's uh, that's different but the, the spectrum of prognostication is is really quite marked i think in the way the way the world is changing now with you know different shifts different people being on call different people taking over care the following day we as dan says we do need to iron out some of this variability put, at least put ourselves in a position where by we can be confident that our decisions are correct and not only can we be confident but we can relay that confidence to the the loved ones and the family of that patient as well we need those decisions to be justifiable we need them to be reactive to the patient situation we need them to be robust so that when they're analyzed later we can defend them that's important not just from an ethical and moral standpoint but it's also going to be critically important for medico legal defense for for example and one of the reasons why that prognostication so early in the ed can be difficult is because we frequently just don't have the information that we might need to interpret the clinical data we've got appropriately so just taking your case for example had the patient been drinking before he was at the top of the stairs? Was he under the influence of any other medication such as benzodiazepines? Had there been a seizure immediately before the ambulance crew got there or immediately before he presented into the emergency room? You can see that there are a large number of potential confounders for a presenting clinical state. And we know that despite a potentially initially devastating a CT scan, it's the correlation of that CT scan with the clinical history that provides accuracy and prognosis. And that's the first red flag, if you like, for early prognostication in the emergency room. So there are a couple of papers which were linked to these guidelines, one from Glasgow by Harvey et al, looking at the prognosis of patients who I think many people would consider to have an unsurvival injury, so the GCS3 devastating brain injury, who were followed up for a longer period of time to find out whether or not they had a good survival. And also, Mark, you did your paper in the EMJ looking at the prognosis of patients with bilateral fixed dilated pupils. And I think both of those papers are fascinating. They're almost dogmalysis, as we like to say in the foam world, about challenging people about the prognosis of this group of patients who many people think have no hope. But in fact, Certainly in your paper, Mark, with the extra-axial collections and the bilaterally dilated pupils, they actually did quite well in a number of occasions. A, a few things to mention here. First thing, what, just to reiterate what Dan said there, the, the word devastating I have a slight problem with, and we've actually put in the word perceived devastating in the, as the title of the paper, because I think that's really important, because saying something is devastating is kind of a fate of complete. It's said it's devastating. It's not the case. It's a perceived devastating injury. And as Dan was implying there, it's a correlation of radiology, which has become sort of a central part of everything we do now. But the CT scan evidence of bad parenchymal brain injury plus neurological evidence. So it's both clinical diagnostic and it's this mirrored radiological diagnosis that, that means 
it's probably it's perceived devastating. If you haven't got either of those, if it's not that bad, the CT scan, but they're well, they've got really bad neurology, the GCS3 with you know, big blue screen, you can't explain it. That's not quite right. And equally the other way around, you could have a bad scan, but actually they're flexing. Well, that's not right either. That, that's not devastating. If, do you see what I mean? You have to you have to put the two together. But the, in particular, we mentioned the paper which was done by Hanny Marcus uh, from our group a few years ago, which was a meta-analysis. And it was surprising how many people with what was considered to be devastating time, bilaterally fixed dilated pupils, did reasonably well. And that was in particular the group that had extra hematomas. And I think the group that had subdural hematomas did, did do quite badly. Only 7% of them had a good outcome, whereas it was uh, it was over 50% of the people who had um, extra I think it does depend on the underlying pathology uh, to a large degree. And you have to really marry that with the actual story that's going on in front of you. One of the things that I could also just add on that is that the perception of good recovery is also something that is very variable. If you ask elderly patients, and one of my colleagues, Michael Fertelman, has done this. Uh, he's a, a geriatrician with us. He, he's asked elderly patients whether they're actually grateful for being treated. And even though in our interpretation, they've got an appalling outcome. They're living in a nursing home, requiring 24-hour care. And you know, you think, oh, really? This, I wouldn't want to live like that. They're un- almost universally grateful that they had the operation that they've, and that they've survived. And I think we often forget that we don't know what it's going to be like on the other side of this, what we might consider really bad, uh, until you're actually in that position. It's a really huge topic to, to discuss this. I think both of you have alluded to the fact that in order to make an informed decision, it's more than just the scan. And it's actually more than just what you see before performing an RSI, for example. There's a lot of peripheral information that we do need to acquire with this. And actually in the recess room in those first couple of hours, it's actually quite difficult to collate all of that information. In fact, in many occasions, you just won't know it at all. That's exactly right. And in fact, we often find that some of that collateral history, which is absolutely crucial, not just to the prognostication of their devastating brain injury, but also to the subsequent clinical and ethical decision making, is just not known at that point of admission. So it may well be that there are other aspects that might lead you to think that a withdrawal, an early withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy is overwhelmingly likely to be in the patient's best interest. Perhaps the patient you just described came in with a history of increasing forgetfulness and a diagnosis of vascular dementia, which had led them essentially to be increasingly bed-bound. But so many times we get histories on the immediate presentation and on further examination later, we find that that initial information is, if not incorrect, then certainly the emphasis is on the wrong place. Sometimes better, sometimes worse, but frequently different. When that information is crucial to subsequent prognostication and decision making, that leads to, to a significant amount of risk. So within the guidelines, there is the implication that we shouldn't really be making precipitous decisions about prognosis. I think there's, there's general agreement from what we've been talking about for all of the reasons you've discussed, and that a period of time to continue resuscitation until it's clear what's going on and a continuing period of time to, to form some more, a clearer idea of what the prognosis is appropriate. What sort of time are we talking about in this group of patients? Well, that's an excellent question. And the truth is that the science just doesn't really tell us the answer to that. And that an American group not dissimilar to ours have recommended 72 hours as an observation window, but to be honest, the the strength of the evidence base, we didn't feel really justified that. And indeed, it's very difficult to give you a cut and dried answer for what the correct time frame is. However, the longer that period is, the more certainty 
we would be able to add to the initial prognostication, partly because we'll have got rid of some of that confusion, confounding issues, clarified the history, and also because if there is to be a recovery in neurological um, status, such that patients would need then to be actively supported and treated, perhaps with uh, with neurosurgery transfer to a neurosurgical centre, that is likely to occur relatively early. Uh, all I was going to add to that was uh, was that it also gives an opportunity for you to gauge not the, only the clinical aspects of the patient, but what the family believe the patient would have wanted as well. So, you know, how much they would have tolerated living with potentially 24-hour care and things like that. It gives you an opportunity to explore far wider than just their sort of past medical history, if you see what I mean. Those recommendations are an important part of these guidelines, which is that if in these situations, the expectation needs to be clearly understood by treating teams, by family, that the overwhelming likelihood is that our initial prognosis proves to be correct and that this is almost certainly a fatal injury with which we have no treatment which will make a material difference and that the time is there not to materially increase the likelihood of a good outcome it's to increase our certainty that there is no possibility of a good outcome and to give all of those clinicians and the family time to come to terms with that information and to make the right decisions in the patient's best interests. Let me give you a bit of an example that might explain that. Perhaps the, we admit the patient for a period of observation to improve the certainty of our prognosis but over the next six hours, the patient becomes increasingly unstable with an aspiration, pneumonitis, oxygenation worsens, blood pressure continues to fall. We have to escalate vasopressor support. There is no improvement in neurological function. And on talking to the family, it becomes clear that they've not only accepted the severity of the injury, but they are also very clear that that patient would not wish to survive left severely neurologically injured and unable perhaps to do many of the things that they that were important to them at that point a withdrawal of, ther- of life-sustaining therapy would be absolutely appropriate for other patients that may take some time for all of that information that understanding and that um, compassionate discussion to occur so there's a couple of things that come out of that because i think everything you said makes perfect sense But there's a couple of challenges that exist within that. The first is when we're dealing with this group of patients about the level of care that we intervene with them. And what I mean by that is that if you're accepting that, as if you take the the information from the Glasgow paper, that about 10% of the patients had a a positive Glasgow outcome score, even when they presented with a GCS of three, then how actively do we treat this group of patients? Are they the ones that ideally, and we may not be able to do it tomorrow, but ideally, should they be transferred to a neurocritical care unit? Should they get something like a bolt if that's appropriate? Should they have the higher level of interventions that you would expect on a neurocritical care unit? Or is this a group of patients who we're going to deal with, perhaps in the periphery, perhaps in the DGHs in the UK, with standard level ICU care, and see how things go over the first few hours, first couple of days? That's a challenge. It absolutely is a challenge. One response, if you like, one answer, one suggestion from that is to look at what happened when this guidance was piloted in the Southwest by Alex Manara and colleagues and their paper recently in the Journal of Intensive Care Society, I think useful reading as a background to our guidance. And over a six-month period, 
there were approximately 21 patients across the whole region who might have fitted our definitions of a perceived devastating brain injury. And they, of those, about five patients were transitioned to active treatment. And those patients that do require that will often show signs of significant improvement, which perhaps confounds your initial prognosis relatively quickly. Is it possible that in failing to deliver all of that neurocritical care right at the beginning, you make a significant difference to their outcome? I'm not sure we've got the evidence to be sure of that. Whilst outcomes for many brain injuries are better in neurocenters, there's no definitive evidence that the use of, for example, ICP bolts or CPP protocols on their own per se improves outcomes. And indeed, it might well be that it is the generalized provision of intensive care and the individualization of decisions which is of equal importance. So I think we'd seek to support clinicians in DGHs having the confidence to say, I am not clear about the prognosis, to provide emergency life-saving therapies by which we often mean positive pressure ventilation, adequate oxygenation, mean arterial blood pressure, and a period of time with, if you like, relatively normal vital signs to see if their initial prognosis is proved to be correct. That doesn't mean that all patients that we have currently thought are not candidates for transfer to neurosurgical centers or neurosurgery itself or placement of an ICP bolt should suddenly have that occur just because of this guidance. We don't have the data to support such a wide-ranging shift. Neither, I don't think, do we have the resources to deliver that in the UK as it stands. And I'm not sure that's in the patient's best interests because we'll be taking them some distance away from their family and it is very likely drawal of life-sustaining therapy and a transition to palliative care and end-of-life decision-making is coming in the very near future. Having them treated close to their families is an important part of, of, of doing that with compassion. I think that's really important, isn't it? And there's a whole bunch of stuff that would transition into end-of-life care. So we have to consider things like organ donation in this group of patients. It's it's a question that will arise for them. We've given, maybe I've given the wrong impression when we've talked about this, that this group of patients do need a long period of time. There will be, as you said, due to other injuries um, or other factors of the patient that you may decide to move to palliative care earlier on. But of course, you can diagnose brain death in a group of patients at a much earlier stage than 48, 72 hours, if that is clearly apparent. So this isn't a, a recipe to just continue regardless. If the situation clearly becomes the case that this patient cannot survive, if they are brain dead, then it's entirely appropriate to withdraw treatment when that occurs. Absolutely. So the diagnosis of brainstem death, neurological death, can move that uncertainty of prognostication into a diagnosis. And that can be very helpful for clinicians and families. And it may well be that a proportion of these patients who present, for example, with fixed dilated pupils will end up fulfilling the criteria for neurological death. We'd caution about doing that early, the guidance from the from the Royal Colleges would suggest uh, at least six hours from the loss of a last of the last brain stem reflex. Longer in the setting of hypoxic brain injury, where I, we would recommend a, a gap of at least twenty four hours. As you said, that's significantly less than perhaps the forty eight to seventy two hours that might otherwise be required. So you might envisage that patients will either progress to brain stem death 
to stay broadly in exactly the same way that they were at, at presentation or to make significant improvements. Now, either way, through all of those possible scenarios, you are making a decision with considerably more certainty in your prognosis. So Mark, as a neurosurgeon in a, a neurocenter, how do you keep track of these patients? Do you think this is a sort of thing that's going to change the way that you practice or do you, do you follow these patients up on a daily basis, even if they're in peripheral units or even if they're in your own unit and keep track of where they're up to? I think in good units, that's, that is what currently happens anyway. But that's certainly something we do. Obviously, we see all patients who have had some kind of brain injury, whether it be not requiring any neurosurgical intervention or not. We, we see them every day and are very much involved with their care and with their family's care. It's, it's slightly more difficult if they're at a peripheral hospital, but absolutely, we still probably inquire on a daily basis or uh, discuss as much as we can our ongoing treatments. And I, I do want to echo that this isn't this doesn't mean they should all be transferred to neurosurgical or neurointensive care units. Uh, I think if someone's got a reversible pathology that, you know, with an intervention, uh, probably a neurosurgical intervention can be reversed, then yes, they should be transferred. But otherwise, most of, apart from ICP monitoring, most of the other interventions are available anywhere. You know, reversal of warfarin, which is probably the increasing intervention that's going to be used, should be available wherever you are, not necessarily just at a, at a, um, a major trauma center. And I want to say reversible, I mean, properly reversing it with Octoplex or something similar, not just uh, vitamin. I, I think that for most of the major trauma centers we've got an active neurosurgical real engagement in trauma this is something that would be part of our daily daily work so i'm going to bring this to a reasonable close if that's okay so i want to go back and have a couple of i think about what we've talked about really we can go back to our case so a case which i described at the beginning with sort of a combination of parenchymal extraxial collections the low gcs who's been intubated and ventilated i think there's this clear agreement with our group here, and you know, it's not a perfect description of a case, that that wouldn't be somebody who we'd want to do anything precipitous with, that that should be a patient who we transfer to an area where they can be managed with appropriate levels of critical care, more information is sought, and then further decisions are made about how long we keep that patient on the intensive care unit, we monitor them for any sense of improvement, and we keep very close liaison with our neurosurgical and neurocritical care colleagues. I think that's clear, and that's really helpful. I mean, it sounds so simple, but I can, can promise you as somebody who doesn't work in a center that has neurosurgery on site, that's an incredibly helpful set of guidelines. The other things we've talked about is that there's still a huge amount of complexity in this group of patients in that there are no simple decisions here. It's not based on a CT scan. It's not based on a GCS. It's not based on an injury pattern. It's not based even on all of those things. It's about how the family fits together and, and what the patient thinks. So I think it's a really interesting group it's certainly a challenging group for us in the ED and I think is incredibly valuable. And the feedback I've had from the blog that we put out and from all the stuff that you guys have put out on Twitter has been very positive as well. Well, thanks. We hope that they'll be useful to, to clinicians who are on the front line because we know that these decisions are difficult. We know they cause moral distress, if you like, amongst staff. And they're certainly very challenging for patient families and unfortunately working in a neuro ICU we deal with that on a on a daily basis I think this is an extremely important area Dan sort of led on to try and help clinicians I I, I would just have one caveat to this this is not I've seen already this can be misinterpreted to a degree which is that all patients should go to intensive care and I don't think that's what this is saying and one of the things we haven't discussed which we should probably mention is that people who aren't intubated who can make the decision early on that because of their comorbidities because of their past memory, because of their not necessarily because they're age specifically but because they are 96 already and living in a nursing home with 20 requiring 24 hour care 
these are not necessarily people that should be going to intensive care. So this is not a blanket. Everyone should go to intensive care. And I think it's very important to emphasize that it would be lunacy to suggest that a patient in whom the burden of their comorbidity it would not normally consider escalation to multi-organ support that you would suddenly do so because they have a perceived devastating brain injury in addition to their comorbidity that was clearly would be an inappropriate thing to do and i think it's still very important that we manage those patients appropriately supporting them to a degree on a medical ward or equivalent uh, with the appropriate palliative care kind of package around them. I just say I mentioned this because I've already seen evidence of people trying to say, oh, this is a pathway now for intensive care. And and I I need to make sure that that doesn't become a a, a ridiculous burden for everyone, for the family, for the patient and for uh, resources. There's something interesting that, that really comes out of what you both just said. And we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago in the St. Edmunds team, is that we've done quite a lot of work. And there's been some fantastic people around the world, like Alex um, Cirides, if I've got his name correct, mm-hmm. from New Zealand, talking about how we need to manage um, in the emergency department at the f- at, in early stages of disease, making appropriate decisions about um, scenes of care and, and things like that. And we've, we're getting much better about for many conditions. But when it comes to trauma, and I know that the, the these guidelines apply to many other things apart from trauma, but when it's trauma, people seem to have quite a different attitude towards that in that they're not as accepting that this injury, whatever it may be, may not be survivable on the basis of the comorbidities. There just seems to be something philosophically different about how we deal with the trauma patients. And that's clearly not right. It is an area where we need to increasingly think, actually, this level, this person's level of injury is so devastating that actually a palliative approach is appropriate. I could, yeah, I think you're absolutely on to something there that's important, Simon. And I've got a couple of things I might I might say about that. The first is that our experience working in a major trauma centre in a neurosurgical centre is that the trauma is not just physical, but for that family and their friends is often deep psychological trauma as well. The events that led up to their mission are often very shocking. There is often a level of guilt and blame that might be absolutely appropriate when we're talking about cases where serious neurological injury was caused deliberately or because of neglect. The decision making in in cases like that can be very challenging. So, for example, in road traffic accidents, in attempted murder and assault, in even in self-inflicted um, harm like hanging, you can already begin to see that the communication with family and friends and decision makers is going to be very challenging in view of the circumstances that led to that admission. That is clearly different from a patient in who has had a persistent and, and definitive deterioration with a chronic health condition like, for example, COPD, where maybe their eventual admission with profound respiratory failure was somewhat expected. That needs to be recognised. Call it to a close there with the thought that what we're trying to do here is to deliver a, the right package for the right person at the right time and that that's going to change over a period of time. And when we do reach the point at which palliation may be appropriate, that we actively manage that just as we actively manage the resuscitation phase and the diagnostic phase. It's a very complex group of patients. It's a very difficult situation, but I'm really glad that you guys have put this together. 
Huge amount of thanks for coming on the podcast. I will put this up on the blog so that the two things run together. And, you know, let's get the message out there and improve the care for this, this challenging group of patients and families who are dealing with something which is truly devastating. If we can make that slightly better, we've done a good job. So thank you so much. Thank you, Simon. And we should just give thanks as well to uh, to the other co-authors on the paper who were all representing other professional organisations, Royal College of Emergency Medicine, Neuroanesthesia Critical Care Society, the Intensive Care Society, Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine, uh, and the Welsh Intensive Care Society, as well as um, the Society of British Neurosurgeons, which Mark represents. So thanks to or all of them for for their support it's always good to talk i think this is a really important area as as we've said everything we can do to try and make it easier for the family make sure that we've made a confident decision i think is a really important thing superb so go and have a listen to that go and have a look at the blog site have a look at all the other stuff we do and whilst you're doing that download the good sam app onto your phone that'll be fabulous thank you so much for your time and we'll speak to you soon goodbye